confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father and forever. This will be the reality, Lord, as You defeat Your enemies until the last enemy, death itself, is defeated. We thank You that for us, these enemies have been conquered by the Gospel. Our sin no longer holds a death sentence over us because Jesus Christ not only died in our place, but He rose from the dead. We pray that with our confession and with our hearts stirred to profess these truths, with our lips, Lord, joined together in unity to sing these songs, and with the resonating of our souls to the proclamation of Your Word, we pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up in this place, that He would be exalted in our understanding, that He would be exalted in our confession of faith, that He would be exalted in the proclamation of His church, that He would be lifted up where He rightfully belongs, enthroned upon the praises of His people. Though we may be few in number, we know that our voices are joined with the saints of old and the saints to come. Lord, transcending time, who recognize that Christ alone is our hope, and He eternally belongs on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I pray, even as Your Word is proclaimed this day, and our hearts are joined together in worship, not only that Christ would be magnified, but that you would lift us up with him, that we might be able to see this world, our lives, and your plan for us from your perspective, that you would help us, Lord, to shake free of the doubt and the discouragement that plagues our limited view, that you would open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding to see your scriptures in light of your glorious truth. In this, that we might be encouraged and equipped for the call to proclaim the lordship and the crown rights of our Lord and Savior and our King, until the day He calls us home, or until the, the day that He returns. We thank You for this glorious privilege. I pray that You would encourage our souls as we behold Your Word. Do this by the power of Your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. What a great privilege it is to open the Scriptures and to worship the Lord, not only with song, but also in the proclamation of His Word, fellowship and prayer this day, as we do every Lord's Day. Turn with me as you're able to Genesis 31, and let's consider the latter portion of this chapter, where we have the record of the Laban and Jacob Covenant. The title of this morning's message is Ebenezer Covenant. That term you may have heard before, but it's easy to forget their meaning sometime. Sometimes Ebenezer simply means stone of help. Stone of help is the name by which or for which a monument that Samuel erected later in this same region, that's what he called his stone. Jacob himself sets up a pillar here, and he's done this before in the record. And there's something significant going on, a number of things, in fact. And so today we consider these truths from Genesis 31, 36 through 55. With your hearts and your Bibles open as you're able, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's scriptures today? Again, Genesis 31, 36 through the end of the chapter, here is the word of God. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all my household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. 
but the heat consumed me by the or by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes these 20 years I have been in your house I served you 14 years for your two daughters and 6 years for your flock and you have changed my wages 10 times verse 42 if the god of my father the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now. Let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or take, my wi- or take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar, which I have set up between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This is an interesting covenant, which is an agreement between two or more parties, and the parties in, at uh, this occasion, of course, are Laban and Jacob. The aim of this morning's message is to showcase the glories of God revealed by covenant. As we know, the concept of covenant is prevalent throughout Scripture and, in fact, is a thematic element that ties all of Scripture together. How might we better understand that greater covenant of salvation in the Bible in light of this lesser provisional covenant between Jacob and Laban. This sermon will attempt to answer that question. Ebenezer, Ebenezer covenant, Ebenezer means stone of help. Aspects of this covenant arrangement between Jacob and Laban, including its memorial monument, a pillar and a heap of stones, and its location identified by several names, these will prove significant ways, or significant uh, in or these will prove significant in ways that these two, Jacob and Laban, could never have imagined. Nevertheless, the redemptive purposes of God are revealed in the course of Scripture, foreshadowed by events in this chapter of Jacob's exodus from Paddan Aram, the land of his father-in-law Laban, unto Canaan, the promised land of his forefathers. Though Laban and Jacob come to terms of relative peace in our passage today, you'll note in our text that there remains great differences between them. Jacob, on the one hand, has turned his face to the promises and the protection of the God of his fathers in willing repentance, while Laban, on the other hand, has been brought to heel 
by the warnings of Yahweh. And he's been brought to submission in, I submit, his actions only. Laban's heart, we find, remains self-serving. This difference in the heart condition is apparent in their exchange at Gilead, this place which will be named for their covenant arrangement. Jacob, as the called anointed covenant son, is protected from his longtime oppressor Laban in this event even as he is consecrated, that is, called out, set apart as holy, unto the purposes of the greater covenant of grace. God, in this instance, through these events, is purifying his son, Jacob, his covenant son. And he's subduing his enemies at the same time, his enemies represented by Laban. In this ceremony, we witness the gracious hand of God guiding Jacob home, and spreading a table before him in the presence of his enemies. In verse 54, as we read this, Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. His one-time enemy, who had kept him in these oppressive conditions for 20 years, Laban, now Jacob is uh, holding a feast to commemorate his liberation, his freedom, and his return to the land of promise. Thus, he's echoing the promise of Psalm 23, verse 5. The Lord will spread a table for us in the presence of his enemies. For his covenant children, he will provide for them, even when it seems circumstances war against them. As Jacob ate bread with his kinsmen, he was saying goodbye to the exile and the oppression of the land of Laban. And he was welcoming the call to journey in faith back to the promised land of his father's. There's many passages of Scripture, more than one at least, I should say, that are illuminated by this event as well. It struck me this week in listening through Proverbs chapter 16 that that Scripture, that passage, the whole thing comes alive in light of this Jacob versus Laban incident. You can study it on your own time, but just consider one verse in particular. Quote, this is uh, uh, Proverbs 16 When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. As we've marked, Jacob's ways are changing. He's repenting and his heart is turning back to the God of his fathers. And as a sign of God's favor upon him, this proverb is true in his case in spite of himself, begrudgingly so, and though his resentment is still underneath the surface, it would seem Laban, nevertheless, is forced by the hand of God to make peace with Jacob. And after this moment, he will never trouble him again as he once did. Jacob had entered Paddan Aram, the land of Laban, 20 years ago in subservient fear, a subject to the tyrant Laban. But now the tables have turned, just like Abraham and Abimelech, how the tables turn with his grandfather. In the end, Jacob proves to be the greater party because and by virtue of the grace of God in his life. And now the lesser party has been subdued by the word of the sovereignty of God. And Laban has been brought into submission, even against his will, to the purposes of Yahweh in our text today. So it's just a little overview and introduction. I'd like to consider a little more closely the significance of this Jacob, Laban, Ebenezer, if you will, covenant. 
So let's consider this exchange in light of its occasion and testimonies. Number two, memorial and witnesses. Number three, terms and vows. And if we have time, this could be a future sermon too. We'll see how it goes. Location and foreshadowings. So note, note first of all, the occasion and the testimonies of this covenant. The testimony of Jacob is extensive in verses 36 through 42. And then Laban answers in a verse there following his testimony. So the occasion, we recall a little bit of the history, right? Jacob has snuck away. It's taken 10 days for Laban to catch up. And now they finally arrived at this place. Now, just a review from our last sermon, we have three characters that were featured in the first portion of the chapter. Jacob and his flight from Paddan Aram, Laban and his pursuit, and then we have Rachel and her theft of the household gods. And I should take this time to correct the record of last week's sermon. I mixed up the name of Rachel and Rebecca a bunch of times, and I know some of you guys caught it, but didn't correct me. Well, feel free to correct me if that happens again. In my notes, I had written Rebecca's theft, and it should, I should have written Rachel's theft, and so I apologize for that confusion. Nevertheless, last week we considered how these characters contribute elements to the story that feature God's sovereignty. That is to say, in, in spite of Jacob's flight, in spite of his escape from Paddan Aram, God shows himself powerful and faithful. In spite of Laban's pursuit, the tyrant is brought to heel by God's sovereignty. In spite of the theft of the household gods by Rachel, those gods end up being sat upon by a woman uh, who claims to be in her menstrual cycle, which desecrates the gods uh, and shows them to be impotent and, uh, and, and totally dethroned, which represented the authority and the sovereignty of Laban. So God has been moving in these circumstances to demonstrate his glory, and now he continues to do this, I submit, through the occasion of this covenant. So because Laban is worried about what might happen if he doesn't basically make relative peace, he decides to come to terms with Jacob, at least relatively speaking. Verse 24, we're reminded that God had shaken him awake in the night hour, that is Laban. God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. But Jacob has a few things to say to Laban. And this is his testimony in verses 36 through 42. <clears throat> Before we get there, there's sort of a prologue. And the parties are introduced of this covenant. And this is kind of according to a typical covenant framework. In the scripture, a typical covenant framework would in introduce the arrangement, that agreement or that contract with the name of the sovereign. And in true biblical covenants, the name of the sovereign is the Lord himself. A legitimate covenant is always made under the authority of God Almighty. Jacob recognizes this in verse 42. He says, if the God of my father the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, written there, translated as a proper noun. In other words, another name for God. He references God in three ways. The God of his father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. In other words, the terms of this relationship, Jacob says, are proceeding according to and under the authority of God Almighty. Jacob is acknowledging the true sovereign in this case. And this is an example of Jacob's growing faith and his convicted testimony. And Jacob gives a little history of the back or, or uh, the, the backstory, if you will, 
before these events by recounting the circumstances of his employ under his father-in-law's heavy hand, Laban. Verse 36, Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and what have you found of all your household goods? <clears throat> Set it here before my kinsmen and before your kinsmen, that they may decide between the two of us. Covenants would be introduced with the name of the sovereign, and then often there'd be a history of the relationship between the two parties. Jacob recounts the history of his relationship with Laban with an indictment, calling Laban out for breach of contract. The history of uh, Jacob's testimony is a history of his relationship with his father-in-law in light of the law of God. He appeals in this testimony, Jacob is not being selfish, not defending himself first and foremost. Rather, he is taking an objective view of God's standards of, standard of righteousness and holding Laban accountable to his breach of contract before the Lord. In doing this, he appeals to something, Jacob does. He appeals to a standard above him, an authority over him. Who is this? This is the God of his father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, the one whom Laban ought to fear. But Laban has not feared the Lord. And this is why the terms of employment have been oppressive, such as they are. So Jacob points this out. He points to the Word of God. He points to the law of God. And in doing this, he references his statements and bases his position in this covenant on a universal, objective, independent, holy standard of truth and righteousness. This is what the Word of God is. The Word of God is a universal, objective, independent, holy standard of truth and righteousness or ethics. And Jacob, in his testimony, demonstrates the foundation for all good relationships, all sound arrangements, all legitimate covenants are based upon a universal, immovable, independent, holy, and objective standard. And that would be the Word of God. Verse 38, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. You and I both know that the agreement that, that we had as far as wages for the privilege of your daughters and for the purchase of my flocks has been more than adequate. And by the book, you and I both know this. But we also know, if we're honest, that you have changed my wages ten times. You have not held up to your end of the bargain. But God saw the affliction. God judged between the two of them, did he not? God saw my affliction, says Jacob, and the labor of my hands, and this is why he rebuked you last night. So the occasion of this covenant is to set the lawbreaker straight according to the word of God. And as Jacob confidently states these things, he is acting like a lawyer adjudicating the law of God, like an attorney or a judge, better said. He is stating and he's applying the word of God in this situation. He's bringing truth to bear where the sinner has fallen short. And in this is an implicit opportunity for repentance. 
you might ask this question. Under these conditions, when Laban is finally called to account a reckoning by his nephew for the sins that he has committed, an objective record of his falling short of God's word and truth, what would, how should he have responded? Well, not how he responds here, which is a, sort of a provisional, let's have a truce, a ceasefire. The right response of Laban should have been, you are right. God, before God, I stand guilty this day. I take this opportunity in light of the truthful statements that you have just issued to repent and to ask for your uh, forgiveness and more importantly, to seek the forgiveness of the Almighty. And perhaps a repentant Laban would have given more flocks into the uh, care of Jacob as a gesture of his turning from his selfish sin and the household gods, the teraphim of his idolatry, and turning to the one true God. Laban does not do this, but nevertheless, Jacob's testimony stands as an indictment of him. And we could only hope that Laban, eventually those words sink in and work real repentance in him. If not, Laban will die and he will face another judgment, another day of reckoning. Not just a what gives meeting with his nephew, who he has abused contract with all these years, but what gives meeting with the God who made him and breathed life into him in the first place and allowed him the use of his fields and flocks all these many years. This is the fear of Isaac, as Jacob describes it, that is living in light of the sovereign, almighty hand of God, who has the power to bless and the power to judge that was missing in Laban's heart, that was lost on him. He did not heed the call to repentance. Nevertheless, Jacob testified to the truth. Laban's testimony was more along the lines of self-defense. We see it in verse 43, kind of cutting his losses and making a strategic calculation given the circumstances. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my flocks, the flocks are my flock, or the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. Well, what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Then he says, come now, let us make a covenant. So this is a testimony of Laban. He is, only, he is not admitting to the truth of Jacob's lawful, rightful statements. Instead, he is trying to cut his losses and secure just enough favor with Jacob to avoid any more, uh, to avoid any more loss of his flocks and holdings and family. And so in his self-interest and in his self-defense, he is willing to make a contract, a ceasefire, a truce with Jacob. And this is the occasion, and that is his testimony. In this, though Laban does not repent, nevertheless, we see the hand of God. God has twisted the arm of Laban, and he will no longer threaten Jacob as he did before. God has brought this man, this unrepentant sinner, into submission, and he is being constrained by the hand of Almighty God. Now, this will happen ultimately in the case of every sinner. Either knees will be bowed in repentance in this life, or knees will be broken in judgment, as we said before, in the next. But nevertheless, God will intervene at times of his choosing to bring the tyrant to heal, and to coerce and to correct and to restrict and, and, and to prevent him from harming his servant anymore. This would be hard to have faith for, for those 20 years of struggle. But nevertheless, God has proven faithful 
after two decades of Jacob's selfless service, now he is bringing a certain judgment upon Laban, and he is setting Jacob free from his heavy hand. Number two, the significance of the Jacob-Laban covenant is viewed not just in light of its occasion and testimonies, but also its memorial and witness. In verse 44, Laban says this, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And then he commissioned his kinsmen to gather stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha. Jacob called it Galid. It also received the name Mizpah, verse 49. <clears throat> Laban said to Jacob, verse 51, See this heap and pillar, which I have set up between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to do me harm, or to me to do harm. What is a witness? Well, again, this is an element of covenant. A witness would be an objective, third, neutral, third party who uh, can hold the two, uh, the two parties in agreement or accountable to their agreement. Um, in the scriptures, you see this concept when God makes a covenant with his people. Having no one to swear, hire to swear to, he swears by himself. When God swears by himself, and the author of Hebrews recognizes this in his commitment, in his promises to Abraham, God is calling himself to witness. There is nothing higher. Sometimes the language of heavens and earth is used as witnesses that God calls. Psalm 50 would be an example. I believe verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people, gather to be my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God calls the heavens and the earth to stand as witness that he will perform his promises and that he will keep his word. In a marriage ceremony, there are witnesses. We've really lost the solemnity of the marriage covenant and our day and age, which is so weak on these categories of scripture. Nevertheless, even traditionally, there's some vestige in a marriage ceremony that retains some of these ideas. When the minister is there acting as a delegated authority of God to solemnize this covenant between a husband and a wife, those who gather in the audience are witnesses. They are, if you will, neutral third party who verify their promise and exchange of vows. And in theory, that if they should break them, that there are those who have witnessed this covenant that can call them to account. Well, this is the concept of witness. And these two stones represent neutral parties to witness a pile of stones and a stone pillar. These two witness monuments represent that, okay, there's a neutral third party that witnesses between us. We are going to make a truce no longer Will we harm one another or seek to harm one another? Why the stone versus the heap? Laban recognized the covenant by a heap of stones we see. And I submit thereby rejected the pillar, the monolithic stone of Jacob. There is something significant in this imagery. These covenant witnesses, I suggest, correspond to differences in religion. Commentators have pointed this out. and I think it's insightful. Do you remember? Who does Laban worship? Well, he worships his household gods, the bunch of teraphim in the Hebrew, those idols, those trinkets that were stolen and then hidden by Rachel. That's who he serves. And so it's appropriate that as witness, there would be this pile of stones. Laban was a polytheist. 
Meanwhile, Jacob, he serves the one true God of Abraham and Isaac, his father and grandfather. Thus, it is appropriate that representing the witness of this covenant, the one true God, Jacob would set up a monolithic stone. Jacob would set up a pillar. So these two witness monuments represent the difference between these two men. There's a memorial here that these uh, heaps of stone and this stone testifies to, but it also illustrates a difference in their worship, in their worldview, in their convictions. And as we see this lay, uh, play out, if we connect the dots, we find that Laban in his sin and in his idolatry recognized the covenant by his teraphim, his household gods, this heap of stones, and thereby rejected the stone. And what does the scripture say? The monolithic stone. And what did the scripture say? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, the imagery of Scripture is reflected even here, that in this instance and in the witness monuments that were erected, we see a difference between the idolater and those whose hearts have been convicted to turn to the one true God. <clears throat> this isn't the first pillar that Jacob has set up, is it? Kids, can you remind us, where, where did Jacob set up his first pillar? Does anyone know? Shout it out if you remember. Yes, that's correct. He laid down his head. Do you guys remember where that was? Where did Jacob set up that first pillar? In chapter 18, we pick up on the account. I'm sorry, 28. Is that right? I'll find it. 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. He went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there at that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And of course, we recall the dream of heaven's staircase touching ground. Early in the morning, verse 18, Jacob took the stone that had been under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of the place. What is it, kids? Do you recall? Name of the place? Bethel, the house of God. So this was the first pillar that Jacob sets up in the course of his life. This uh, memorial moment reminds Jacob that God's word is true and his promises are assured in spite of exile. So a monument at Bethel, a pillar at Bethel, reminds Jacob that God's word is true in spite of his heading to Paddan Aram and into exile. In our text today, the second pillar Jacob is reminded that God's word is true and his promise stands in spite of his enemies. When he sets up this pillar in light of his confrontation and then covenant with Laban, Jacob is reminding himself and his family and all who look at that pillar that God's word stand, stands and his promises are true in spite of enemies who would seek to pursue him and prevent him from entering back into that land of promise. Canaan land, the land of his forefathers. And then there's a third point, just a little flash forward for you. In chapter 35, Rachel has died, says verse 19. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. Note this parentheses, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. So these witness moments have significance in the life of Jacob. Three pillars. The first at Bethel, God's promise stands in spite of exile. The second at Gilead, 
or Galid, or Mizpah, these various names, where he made that covenant with Laban. God's promise stands in spite of his enemies. And then the third pillar in Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. God's promise stands in spite of death. Isn't it interesting, at the very place where Jacob buried the covenant bride, his beloved wife, in prayer of faith that the generations to come would bear the son of promise, that very place in Bethlehem, a son of Jacob was born that would be the savior of the world. That pillar that Jacob set up in Bethlehem to remind him of God's promises, that promise was fulfilled in that very same town in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Who is the rock in the wilderness? Who is the chief cornerstone? Who is the assurance of the promises? Who is the son of Jacob? Who is the ladder touching ground, heaven's staircase touching earth? Who is the assurance of all the promises that Canaan represented coming true for all the covenant elect and all who are in Christ, even the new heavens and new earth? So there's a scope that we witness in the life of Jacob and significant moments that point forward. This memorial and witness, even in our text today, speaks of a memorial and witness uh, uh, or it speaks of a witness to come when Jesus Christ, the rock, the true rock, would be born and fulfill these pictures of old. Of course, Jesus is identified in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 with the rock in the wilderness that gave forth, that was struck, and that as a result of that striking gave forth the living water that sustained God's people in their own period of exodus. So this imagery of rock as representing the covenant and hope, and a foundation in the wilderness, and a, place, and a provision unto eternal life, and a striking that is necessary. All these pictures tie together and picture something to come. In this, I suggest as an application as well. What are your pillars, we might ask? Could we learn something from Jacob? At significant points in his life, where the trials were great, what did he do? He gathered his family around and he made a statement to them and to his own soul that God's promises are stronger than exile. He sets up that pillar in Bethel. And at this time, running away, scared for his life, yes, but then having the confidence, being reminded of God's providence, province, uh, promises, he sets up a pillar at Gilead and reminds his own soul and his family that God's promises are stronger than his enemies. And at the death of his beloved bride, Rachel, the future, in Bethlehem, he sets up a pillar and he reminds his soul and his family that God's promises are stronger than death. An exhortation, an application we could take from this is that when we, as fathers and husbands, speaking to us, lead our family in the ways of righteousness, as we attempt to do so as God has given us charge over this flock, in those times of great trial, don't forget to remind our souls, remind your soul and your family that God's promises, that the gospel is more powerful than trial, than enemies, than death. And in this, we can point to something stronger than ourselves, something stronger than circumstances, something stronger than death. Jesus Christ, the rock in the wilderness, who is the foundation and the source of life for all who place their hope and trust in him. Jacob did this by faith at these memorial moments through the course of his life. And we can do so by faith, knowing that the rock has come, born in Bethlehem, crucified, died, raised, resurrected, and ever ruling and reigning on our behalf. 
And so when we set up our pillars, so to speak, that is memorial moments in our lives, we can point the fortunes of our family and the confidence of our souls towards the one who has overcome death itself and lives forever. Third major point this morning, the significance of the Jacob and Laban covenant in light of not just occasions and testimony or occasion and testimonies, memorial and witness, but also terms and vows. In verse 52 through 55, we uh, listen to this exchange. Laban's primarily speaking here. Jacob answers to close this ceremony. Laban says, This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap, and this pillar, uh, and this pillar to do me harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. And then early in the morning, Laban arose. He kisses his grandchildren, his daughters. He blesses them, departs, and returns home. Under these terms and vows, in verses 52 and 55, Laban and Jacob both promise they make a commitment not to harm or pursue one another ever again. And in this vow exchange, we see that Laban surrenders. But even as he's surrendering, he's projecting, you could say to use kind of like a modern psychological term, onto Jacob. Laban says, see this heap and pillar? It's like this is a witness between us uh, that you may not cross it. Uh, Verse 50, if you oppress my daughters or you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Why does Laban state his vows in this way? He says, let this be a witness between us that you won't oppress my daughters. Why does he imagine Jacob might do so? Well, it's because that's the way his heart was wired. He had oppressed Jacob this whole time. Laban sees Jacob through the lens of his own self-centeredness. Laban suggests, or the terms suggested by Laban in this covenant indicate a fear that Laban would oppress, I'm sorry, that Jacob would oppress Laban's daughters. Why does he think this? Because it's something that he would do. He's judging Jacob's character by his own inclinations. He continues, we see in this exchange, that Laban continues to be held hostage. He continues to be a slave to the flesh. He is held captive to his own self-centered idolatry. Who is the real slave here? Laban, for 20 years, has successfully kept Jacob and under his employ and something of a slave indentured servitude in his own house. But now Jacob is being set free. He has honored the Lord and he has respected his father-in-law. He's gone above and beyond in keeping his promises. Jacob is no slave. Jacob is a patriarch. He's a covenant son. And finally now, the liberation of these circumstances has caught up with his true calling and he is headed into Canaan. But who is the real slave? Meanwhile, Laban is still a slave to his own inclinations, his own selfish preferences, and his own flesh. As long as Laban remains in this state of soul, in this state frame of heart and mind, he will never be free from anxiety. He will never be free from fear. He might have made this covenant here, but he will fall asleep agitated each night, worried that Jacob might bring him his, do, uh, his just dues because he knows 
in the depths of his heart that he has treated his nephew poorly, and he deserves the judgment of God. Will this covenant be enough to set Laban free from his guilt for oppressing Jacob for 20 years? No. But there is a covenant that would be sufficient to set Laban free from his guilt for oppressing his nephew for 20 years. And that covenant is the belief that a Messiah would come, that a son of Jacob would come, who would die in the place of Laban, who would take the punishment and the penalty that he deserved. Laban was a victim of his own guilt, a victim of his own sin, tortured by the justice he knew he deserved. And he would remain that way unless and until he repented. This is just a provisional covenant. But within this is a seed, it's a picture of a covenant that could truly set Laban free. Jacob is blessed, and he can leave with the sigh of relief, the assurance of the protection of the Lord after this covenant. God is providing and protecting him for him and protecting him along the way. But when Laban heads back to Paddan Aram, there is no such reassurance. Not until he has his own Bethel experience. Not until he repents and leaves behind his teraphim and his household gods. Not until he sets up his own pillar, so to speak, that confession that in God, Yahweh alone, the fear of Isaac, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and his plan of salvation is hope for my redemption. This is the gospel that Laban needed. This is the gospel that he has not yet received. On the other hand, though, Jacob worships. Laban surrenders. His arm is twisted. He submits. He projects. He heads home under this provisional terms. But Jacob, he worships. Verse 54, his response. Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. You see, in the camp of Jacob, there's sacrifice. Jacob's worshipful recognition that God will provide the justice and the judgment that is necessary for him to be free from his sin. This is what a sacrifice in faith pictured in the Old Covenant. And Jacob, free now and, will, and able to worship the Lord without that guilt plaguing his soul, worships and eats bread and feasts and a sweet communion, a covenant meal ceremony with those who are following him as he follows Yahweh back to the land of the covenant. There's a distinct difference between the terms and vows of Laban's promises and Jacob's worship. We see in this that Laban sought assurance by appealing to Jacob's goodwill. He's like, hey, make a promise not to pursue me and not to take up arms against me. Laban is seeking assurance and peace by appealing to Jacob's goodwill. Jacob, however, is seeking assurance by appealing to God's goodwill. And that is the theme of his worship. He's appealing to God's will by sacrifice and then celebrating in a communion feast that the assurance of God's help and God's hope through promise will keep and guide him and secure him along the way. This is part of the significance of this Laban-Jacob covenant is the difference in the heart condition and the assurances of the soul between these two men. Finally, as we bring this message to a close, we find that this location 
has a number of names, and it also shows up in, the fut in future scripture. What are the names of this location? Well, not to get too confusing, but there's a number of them. Verse 22, Laban is following close after Jacob into the hill country of Gilead. So in Gilead, these events take place. And then later in verse 47, a few other names. Laban called it Jacob Sahadutha. Jacob called it Galid. And then therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. So Jehir, Sahadutha, Galid, Mizpah, Gilead. That's all uh, names for the same region or similar area, location. And those three, those latter three, all mean something similar too. They mean like a heap of witness or a stone of witness. So the name of that place uh, becomes identified with the significance of this covenant that was hammered out between Jacob and Laban. Now, uh, turn with me, if you would, to a future uh, text in 1 Samuel chapter 7. This place becomes significant again, and we see this in the administration of Samuel, who would commence his judiciary, his calling to lead God's people, and experiences a great deliverance at Mizpah. Verse 3, Samuel said to all those of the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and to serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth that they served, and they served the Lord only. This is what Laban should have done. Verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah. So we see we recognize that name. And I will pray to the Lord God, to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. This is Samuel in the legacy, according to the legacy of Jacob, following the pattern of the patriarch to bring the people in a day of remembrance and confession of sin and repentance of idolatry and true worship before the one true God. He's giving this offering. He's calling this worship service. Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, verse 6b. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. Here's the enemies once again. Same location. Enemies threatening God's covenant people once again. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Once again, that fear surfaces. Verse 8, And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 9, So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. <clears throat> the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Later, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. 
He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, we recognize that name, Gilgal and Mizpah, the occasion of our text today, the location. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So you see the pattern of Mizpah repeated in the administration of Samuel. Again, uh, enemies were threatening God's people. Again, a sacrifice and a plea is offered, and God's promises prove stronger than his enemies. The Philistines are routed at the same location. And so to honor and to commemorate this moment, God's servant Samuel, in this case, does what Jacob did ages ago. He sets up a stone to remember that God is more powerful than the threat of the Philistines, commemorates that place between Mizpah and Shem. Idols are abandoned, sacrifice and worship commence, enemies are routed, and Samuel's administration as judge is inaugurated at this same location. We go through scriptures and we see even more connections without spending too much time in this today, perhaps at a later time. Mark for future study, Isaiah 28, 16 through 18. God himself as witness. This is that passage that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. Do you remember that? I'll just turn there so we get a flavor of how these words become significant in the fulfillment or how how these concepts become significant in the fulfillment of God's purposes even in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Isaiah is quoted, For it stands in Scripture, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, of course Zion more general term location-wise, but certainly would include Mizpah, and a stone we find is going to be laid in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is the significance of the Laban-Jacob covenant? Well, really, it comes down to just two types of people. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 3, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Laban and his followers, Jacob and his followers. On the one side, those who trust in a heap of their own idols, they disobey the Lord as they are destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word. But on the other side, there's Jacob and those who follow in his legacy. And who are they? A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And who are they? They are the ones who look to the stone. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Jesus is the ultimate witness stone, if you will. He was the one who fulfills these pictures of old. He is the one that is just as Jacob's pillar was a stumbling block for Laban. And he rejected it for his own idols as represented by that heap. So Jesus Christ stands as a witness stone to all people today. Will you accept him or will you reject him? Will you reject him by disobeying his word and joining the camp of Laban, the seed of the serpent, and falling against that stone as a stone of stumbling and being crushed to powder? Or will you bow before Jesus Christ, that precious foundation, 
that witness stone that testifies that he is the foundation whereby a nation, a priesthood, a people for his own possession may be built to the praise of his glorious name, to show forth and proclaim the excellencies of him and his gospel. He is the one, after all, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, church, today, if you have repented and turned from your sins, if you have rejected the idols of our day, if you have thrown away the teraphim that uh, are the distracting worldview, pleasures, pursuits, and appeals to authority of our hour, if you, are tur- if you, if you have turned to that monolithic stone, as it were, that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, then you are heirs of Jacob. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And what a great vision for our reason for gathering in this place to offer up the sacrifice of praise, to pour out in sweet communion and worship our thankfulness to our God who has defeated our enemies. Let's make this place our Mizpah, our Galid, so to speak. As we gather in sweet communion next week, that covenant meal and share at the Lord's table, let's remember and let's set it, let's make it a pillar moment, if you will, to set up that monument in our souls to remind us that God's promises are more powerful than exile, enemies, or death, and chiefly our sin. Praise his holy name. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the assurances of your gospel. We thank you for the unified and harmonious testimony of scripture. We thank you for the power of these truths to deliver the captives and to stir faith within our souls. Whatever enemies we face, Lord, even this day, I pray that we would do so with the confidence that your word reminds us of that Jesus Christ is the great conqueror and king of kings. And in him, all enemies are subdued. I pray that we would, Lord, if it is in your will, live to see the day when your enemies, even in our nation, in our culture, in our society, in this world, brought to heal. But if we don't live to see that day in time, we know that it will come at the end of time. And we thank you, Lord, that you are powerful and that you will do it. In the meantime, Lord, we pray that in your long suffering, that you would use the testimony of your church heirs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spiritually to hold out hope that in Christ, that stone in Zion, there is provision unto eternal life. There is a foundation for hope eternal. Let us bear that message with confidence, even when it is opposed, drawing great encouragement from your holy scriptures. And may we be found faithful when you return or when you call us home, proclaiming the excellencies of you proclaiming the excellencies of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In his name we pray, amen.